Like I do at the beginning of each one of these lessons, remind us of why we are here in the Psalms of Ascent. We are here because these Psalms kind of function as kind of an opening act to everything that was going to happen in the primary worship service whenever the worshipers got up to Jerusalem. These men and sometimes women and children were traveling up to Jerusalem to go to a worship service for the the three um, feasts in Jerusalem. And they would sing these songs and it would set their hearts in the right orientation. And that's the same thing we're doing here. And just as another reminder, remember there's 15 of them. Today we're just going to cover one. So it's going to be a little bit different than all the previous ones. Um, because today's is a little bit longer than a typical Psalm of Ascent. But throughout these 15, and we've covered 12 so far, we're making taking a journey. Each Psalm has been intentionally arranged in order to be this ascension. It's another reason why they call the Psalms of Ascent, because they have an ascension to them, a succeeding effect. So once you finish the entire journey of 15, you've made it a long way from where you started at the very first one. So to rehearse where we've been so far, you started the, we started the journey downtrodden, separated from the people of God and surrounded by those who want war. Then the next psalm, we remind ourselves that the help for the journey comes only through Yahweh, who will forever keep us and protect us. Then we rejoice at our arrival in Jerusalem and pray for her peace and unity. While there, we look upon the Lord with a longing gaze, beg for his mercy and his relief upon us. Then we move to celebrate God for his providence towards us and guiding hand of protection. After that, you're back extolling the, the glories of being physically and spiritually in Mount Zion and the blessed peace that exists there. You move on to holy laughter, overflowing joy that comes from considering the great things that the Lord has done for us. And the next psalm moves into a brief movement that asks God to, for a flooding of his blessings, especially upon those who weep and mourn. And the overall message of the psalm that followed that one was that all of life is vanity if the blessings of the Lord are not upon your efforts, whether that is building a house, whether it's vocational work, or whether it's raising a family. The blessings of the Lord need to be there. Two weeks ago, we had two very contrasting psalms in terms of emotions. First, we had the blessed man. The blessed man fears the Lord, enjoys the fruits of his labor, has a loving wife, has invigorated children, and seeks the prosperity of the worshiping community. Then came the curse of the imprecatory Psalm 129. The study of this psalm culminated in us remembering where the blessings and the curses come from in the most explicit way, which is the cross. And then last week, we had the mini gospel presentation of Psalm 130, which started with the acute awareness of one's own sinfulness, followed by the affirmation that there is forgiveness that the Lord grants, followed by confident waiting, And then finally, an evangelistic tone of the last two verses. And we finished out last week talking about Christian humility and contentment with another psalm written by David. Today, like I said, we're only going to do one psalm. We're only going to do one Psalm 132 today. And because it's a little bit longer, it's 18 verses where the typical psalm of ascent is usually like five or something like that. So it's a little bit longer, so we're just going to do one. Today we're going to see promises made and promises fulfilled. Just to warn you, today's going to be very Bible drill-like. We're going to go to a lot of different scriptures, so just be warned. Be prepared to be turning in a lot of different places. It's okay. It's good for us. But first, Psalm 132. Psalm 132. A song of a sense. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. 
I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we have heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant my testimonies that I teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion, he's desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her her priest I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. So God's, here we go, God with all these promises here. God's promises to his people are revealed through covenants. Okay, so today we're going to talk a little bit about covenants, covenant theology a bit. Now I'm going to resist the temptation to barrage y'all with the Baptist covenant theology. Now, my very first Sunday school series, in one of the first lessons, I tried to jam in all the Baptist covenant theology in one lesson. It was a giant mistake because I had to rush through everything and none of it made any sense. So I'm not going to do that this morning. We're just going to focus on one of them. But, but, but briefly, you, you can't can't really set the stage without first explaining how God communicates his promises through his people through covenants. And that's the background for this psalm. It's one very specific covenant, and all of the covenants is the Davidic covenant, obviously. So first of all, let's go to actually where this covenant is. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 through 18. Let's read that. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But at the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan... Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people out of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you say, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people. And I've been with you wherever you went and cut off all your enemies before you. And I will make for you a great name like the names of the great ones on earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From that time I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, but with the stripes of the son of men, 
But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So this is God talking through Nathan the prophet to David. And the main verse there is 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made forever shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So we got you got covenants all throughout the Bible. Very briefly, you got the covenant of eternal redemption. I'm not going to go into all these because we don't have time. Covenant of eternal redemption. You've got the covenant in the Garden of Eden made with Adam. You've got the Noahic covenant. You've got the Mosaic covenant. And here we've got the Davidic covenant. You've got the new covenant coming later on. But the background for Psalm 132 is the Davidic covenant. So the Davidic covenant is where, obviously, God makes a promise to David. First, David says he's going to build God a house. God says, no, your son's going to build me a house. But more than that, I'm going to build a house for you, David. But your house is going to be an eternal spiritual house. And your son is going to reign on your throne forever. That's the essence of the Davidic covenant there. You're going to have a son to reign on your throne forever. And one of the things... One of the things that's actually particularly interesting about the Davidic covenant, it's really the only covenant that we have that's accompanied by a prayer from the recipient of the covenant. David's prayer, if you jump down to verses 27 through 29, it's over there. Here's what it says. It says, For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. So the Lord's promise to David, and then David's acknowledgement of that promise, was that the kingly lineage of David is going to continue forever. That's the Davidic covenant. And that's the background of Psalm 132, which at the same time, if you look over to Psalm 132, it's, it's, it's at the same time, it's a kingly psalm, it's a messianic psalm, and it's a Zionistic psalm. So it's, it's praising, it's asking God to bless the king, it's looking forward to the Messiah, obviously, as the anointed one here, and it's a song that celebrates Zion like a lot of the other psalms of ascent have too. So let's, let's look a bit more at the psalm itself. I wanted to give the background first of the Davidic covenant, because obviously that's the background here. You can see that at the very face value here. But for the psalm itself, at the beginning, you've got a verse 1 for God to save the king. And then verses 2 through 5 give a remembrance of how David first proclaimed his desire to build a temple. So we just read that over in the, the narrative of the Davidic covenant. David first expresses his desire to build the temple. Then in verse 6, it announces the two locations in Israel that worshipers have heard the news of the intention to go worship in God's presence. So verses 1 through 5 are kind of separated because that kind of gives the background of the Davidic covenant there. It's on 132, verses 1 through 5. And then verses 6 through 7 kind of jumps back to the present tense of the worshipers. And it, and obviously, in, in the course of the song, they said we've heard it. We have heard it in Ephrathah. We have found it in the fields of Jaar. So you've got these two places, Ephrathah and Jaar, where the worshippers have said that they've heard the announcement to go worship in Jerusalem, where he dwells in the temple. The reference to the footstool there in verse seven 
shows the, the high regard that the worshipers paid to the Ark of the Covenant, which was often called God's footstool. This was the place that was really like God's throne, his physical throne on earth. It's where his footstool was. It was actually at the Ark of the Covenant was where it was. And remember, the Ark of the Covenant, was its place was in the Holy of Holies in the temple. So first in the tabernacle and then in the temple, it was in the Holy of Holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was, was placed. And the Holy of Holies was a place that only the high priest could go, and only the high priest could go there only one day per year. So it was the only time anyone was ever allowed in the Holy Holies. One person, one day a year, that was it. And this, on this Day of Atonement, God's presence was especially felt during the Day of Atonement there. And this actually, so the Ark of the Covenant kind of idea actually connects back to that place back in verse 6 there, Jar. So Jar is another name for a city called Kiriath-Jerim. That's maybe, maybe not a city that you specifically remember in the Old Testament. But Kiriath-Jerim was a pl- the place that the Ark actually was before David brought it up to Jerusalem. So the ark, after the time of the judges, had kind of taken on like this almost like magic talisman kind of thing. The Israelites would kind of carry it around with them to battle because they thought it was like a lucky charm that would help them win the battles. And God told them, no, that's not the case. And he made them lose some. The Philistines beat them. The Philistines took the ark and God struck the Philistines with a bunch of sickness and smashed a bunch of their idols. So the Philistines sent it out and it actually came to Kiriath-Jerim. And there it stayed for a few years. I don't remember how much it was. But it was held in very high regard and in a proper way in Kiriath-Jerim until David brought it up to Jerusalem from there. And so Kiriath-Jerim is also Jar. So you get this connection of the Ark of the Covenant here between verses 6 and 7. So Jar and his footstool. So this Ark of the Covenant right there. And then verses 8 through 10. This is actually essentially repeats of 2 Chronicles 6, verses 41 and 42. So I'm going to read 8 through 10, and then we're going to flip over to 2 Chronicles 6. I told you we're going to go to a lot of different scriptures today. So 8 through 10, it says, Arise, O Lord, go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Okay, so now jump over to 2 Chronicles 6. Okay, 2 Chronicles 6, let's turn the page, there we go. 2 Chronicles 6, verses 41 and 42, and the context here is after the temple has been built, Solomon has this grand declar- uh, uh, dedication of the temple, and at the end of the dedication, Solomon prays a prayer. It might have been at the beginning. Anyway, at the dedication, Solomon prays a prayer, and this is how the prayer ends. And now arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation. Let your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for David, your servant. You got the completion of the temple here. Obviously, this is basically the same. This is almost a quotation from Psalm uh, 132, 8 through 10, or that's a quotation of this. So you get the temple completed by Solomon. There's this dedication Solomon prays this magnificent prayer. It's worth to go read the whole thing. It's just, a, I mean, it's a great prayer. But that's the conclusion to it. 
prays for blessings upon the priest and the congregation and asks God to remember the Davidic covenant. That's what he's doing. So we got the Davidic covenant being brought back in here. Remember David, your steadfast love for your servant David. He's praying God, praying to God the promises that God has already made, which is a very good practice. And then what comes immediately after this, after Solomon's prayer? So the next three verses, so 7, 1 through 3, it says, As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the temple, filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So after Solomon prays this, this prayer, the glory of the Lord is so thick in the temple that the priests cannot even enter it. So I don't know what that means, that the glory of the Lord was thick, but it was so heavy the presence of the Lord was so heavy that the priests could not even go in the temple. The Lord was obviously very pleased here. So that's great. And so the singers of Psalm 132 would obviously have this in their mind as they're singing this. They know this is, this is like peak of Israel, right? The temple's been completed. This is before all of the, the downgrade that Solomon does and everyone after Solomon. This is like peak Israel. And everyone's going to remember that when they're singing it, how great the glory of the Lord was during this particular time whenever they sing verses 8 through 10 here. It'd be a, it's a very special moment for Israel. The Lord's presence was known then like it had been known no other time. It would really make them long for, for his glory to be made manifest again like, like at that time. So then, after verses 8 through 10, the psalm moves in verses 11 and 12 to briefly recount the Lord's promise of the Davidic covenant again. It's brought back to the Davidic covenant. And then concludes in verses 13 through 18, affirming God's choice of Zion as the revelation of God's earthly presence. We've already looked at that in previous Psalms of Ascent. But some others outside of the Psalms of Ascent, it's particularly extolling Zion. You've got Psalm 46, Psalm 48, and Psalm 76. They're all Zionistic Psalms that extol Jerusalem and Zion as God's chosen place on the earth to make his dwelling place known. And so as a psalm of ascent, the worshipers would then use this psalm to remind themselves that God is always true to his promises. He never fails to uphold his his end of the covenants at any time. God is fully trustworthy, and we should never question whether something that he has sworn to fulfill will indeed come to pass. So it's a reminder that God is always true to his promises. And so we would do well to remember that precious truth too. Moving forward in our lesson today, I want to go back and focus on a few key verses from this particular psalm and to show that the psalm was and is pointing directly to Jesus Christ. I don't really think I need to convince you guys of this, but I'm going to anyway. So you can use this if for someone who does not see this outside of this classroom. You can, might, might could use this. So first, the the climax, the central verse of this psalm is verse 10. So verse 10, for the sake of your servant, David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Remember, this is borrowed from 2 Chronicles, so you get it repeated here. Immediately, obviously, this this is referring to the political king of Israel. So whatever son of David that was on the throne at that particular time, Lord, 
For the sake of David, do not turn away the face of your holy ones. So if you remember the kings of Judah, there were some good ones, but a lot of them were bad kings. So it's a prayer. Lord, I know this is a bad king. Please don't turn away your face for the sake of your servant David, though. But it's not just focused on the, the particular king of Israel at the time that they're praying this. But here the phrase anointed one, y'all all probably know this, the Greek word for anointed one is Messiah. So this psalm is really ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. This is a, a prayer for God to bless his people through the coming Messiah, through Jesus. Ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And I'm going to, if you're not convinced, which I think you probably are, but if you're not convinced, I'm going to convince you by the end of the Sunday school lesson. So if you may have noticed, whenever I, I went through verse 6 a minute ago, uh, I said there was two places there, Jaar and Ephrathah. And I focused on Jaar. Well, let's go back to, to Ephrathah. I skipped over that one. Come back to Ephrathah. Where is this place? Where is Ephrathah? Well, I'm glad you asked. If you turn to Micah 5, it's going to tell us. Micah 5. Jonah, Micah. Okay. Micah 5, verse 2. This is a prophecy of Micah pointing to the coming Messiah. It says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah. There we go. Who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. So I don't know. I don't know how people try to get around that this is talking about Jesus. I haven't looked into the counter arguments of this, but this is obviously talking about Jesus, right? So the the second second person of the Godhead that's existed from eternity past, from from the ancient of days, he's the one that's going to be the ruler of Israel. He's going to come from Bethlehem, Ephrathah. So going back to Psalm one thirty two, you've heard it in Ephrathah. They've heard it in Bethlehem. This is where the Messiah is coming from. So Ephrathah is Bethlehem. Very specific prophecy that the Messiah is going to be born here. This is obvious to me. I don't know how anybody can deny it. But, I, you know, if you may be thinking back, this is, Bethlehem is actually David's birthplace too. So maybe there's some, Micah's talking about that. But Micah's written long after David's born. Micah's way after David. So Micah's talking about the ultimate ruler of Israel, or in our case, the church, the one who is born, or the one who is not born, who is from the ancient of days, when he assumes his personhood, is going to be from Bethlehem. Okay. So there you go. That's one key verse pointing to the Messiah in this psalm. Second key verse, back in Psalm 132, verse 17, it says, I will make a horn sprout for David. I prepared a lamp for my anointed. So this is another reference for the Messiah to be a descendant of David. And the Jews were fantastic at keeping genealogies, something they were very good at from thousands of years. They've kept fantastic genealogies. We have two separate genealogies, one in Matthew chapter 1 and another in Luke chapter 3 that shows the direct line of David to Jesus. And the horn here, mentioned in verse 17, is a symbol for strength. That's something in the Bible that's a symbol for strength is the horn. And it's used throughout the Old and New Testaments this way. 
And so Zechariah, obviously not Zechariah the prophet, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, he obviously has Psalm 132 in mind when after the birth of his son, John the Baptist, he says in Luke chapter 1, in Luke chapter 1, Zechariah says this in verses 67 through 69, a section titled Zechariah's Prophecy. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. So this sounds a lot like here, verse 17 of 132. There I will make a horn sprout for David. So he's raised up a horn, for, a horn of salvation for his people. This is Zechariah not prophesying about his own son. This is him prophesying about the one that's going to come after his son. So, hope you're convinced. But if you're still not convinced, the 132 is about Jesus. Look up just a few paragraphs, and I flip back here. I forgot it was staying here. A few paragraphs up in Luke chapter 1, in verses 26 through 33. This is what it says. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what the sort of greeting might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. Okay, that's, we're getting very explicit now. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So you got, going back to Second Samuel chapter 7, of his kingdom there will be no end. He will be on the throne forever. Again, Gabriel reiterates the Davidic covenant here when he makes the promise to Mary that her son is going to assume the throne of David and reign there forever. Still not convinced? Okay, one more. Last one, I promise. Peter, in what might be the greatest sermon ever preached, this is one of my opinions, there's, there's tons of great sermons, obviously. Tons of great ones in the Bible. But this is, this is one of my favorites. In Acts chapter 2. So Peter, in his sermon, in Acts chapter 2, and remember, remember Peter's preaching to Jews here mainly. Peter's preaching to Jews, and this is what he says in Acts chapter 2, verses 29 through 31. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he, was, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David 
did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that the God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. So you got Peter preaching to Jews here. But the, the really important verses, at least for our purposes here, is verses, let's see, mainly verse 29. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, not verse 29, really verses 29 all through 30. David was a prophet and he spoke, one, one of his descendants would be on his throne and then he foresaw about the resurrection of Christ. So Jesus raises, uh, God raises Jesus up. Jesus is obviously on the throne of David here. And remember kind of the, the whole message of Acts is really come follow this king. Come follow this king Jesus. The king has died for you. Come follow the king. The king has come to assume David's throne. That's what Peter, Peter's preaching about here. So taking all this together, 2 Samuel, Chronicles, the verses in Luke, the two passages in Luke, Micah chapter 5, Acts chapter 2, we really see that Psalm 132 is really focused on Jesus. It's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So the throne of David is assumed by Jesus. Jesus is pronounced king by non-Jews. First in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. This is where the wise men come and they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Getting this motif of Jesus is the king. And wise men say, for we, see his star, we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. All four gospel accounts specifically state that Pilate directly asked Jesus if he is king of the Jews. This is something that was recorded in all four Gospels. Pilate directly asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? To which Jesus responds, it is as you say. But this king, this king of the Jews, the one that is the rightful heir to the throne of David, he was not coronated with a crown made with gold and jewels. This king was coronated with a crown of thorns. And this is how Matthew describes the scene. Matthew chapter 27 describes a scene like this, starting in verse 33. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple, rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and then we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. So this is how Matthew describes it. People walk by mocking him, 
saying what kind of king hangs on a cross. So I'll tell you what kind. The kind who is willing to pay the ultimate sacrifice for his subjects. This is the king. Jesus was flogged. He was mocked. He was crucified. And he incurred the total and complete wrath of God on behalf of you and me. This is the king. But the king was not bound by nature's laws. The grave could not hold him. He was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit. He then ascended and he sits eternally on David's throne in the heavens, just like David, just like God promised David back in 2 Samuel. Forever. And one day, this king is returning, scepter in hand, when all will bow to him, either in submission and reverence or in judgment and terror. But be sure, all will declare, this is the king of the Jews, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. So keep that in mind as we sing this together here today to worship David's greater son. So remember him. Remember him in his passion. Remember him in his sacrifice. Remember him on his throne. Remember the king of the Jews. So let's sing to him. So if you get your psalters there, just singing one. And this one's a little bit different. This is what happens sometimes and whenever you're creating they're creating psalters, is that it's, the psalms are a bit longer. We haven't encountered this before because all of them have been fairly short psalms, so they're contained with one, one psalm. This one splits it up. So we're going to sing verses 1 through 12 first. We're going to sing this to the tune of Take Time to Be Holy. And then we're going to come back and sing verses 13 through 18 to the tune of Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus without the refrain. I'll remind you of that when we move on to that one. But first, Psalm 132, verses 1 through 12, to take time to be holy.
on to the next one, verses 13 through 18. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Remember, without the refrain.